Your news flash for Sunday, 29 April 2018. It's 7 p.m. Singapore time. North Korea's leader Kim Jong Un said he would move the country's clocks 30 minutes forward to unify with the South's time zone as a conciliatory gesture after last Friday's inter-Korea summit, Seoul said today. The two countries on the divided peninsula have had different time zones since 2015, when the North suddenly changed its standard time to 30 minutes behind the South. Pyongyang cited a nationalistic rationale, saying it would return the North to the time zone used before Japan's 1910-45 colonial rule of the peninsula of the peninsula to mark the 70th anniversary of its liberation from Tokyo. But Mr. Kim promised to change the time zone back during the historic summit with South Korean President Moon Jae-in, Mr. Moon's spokesman said. The pair held the summit, the third such meeting between the two Koreas, at the border truce village of Panmunjom, during which Mr. Kim sets the foot on the south side of the border for the first time, and the two leaders pledged to pursue denuclearization and a permanent peace. Mr. Kim said he found it heartbreaking to see the two wall clocks hanging at the summit room showing different times for the two neighbours, Mr. Moon's spokesman, Yoon Yang-chan, said. Mr. Yoon quoted Mr. Kim as saying, Since we were the ones who made the change from the standard time, we will go back to the original time. You can announce it publicly. Mr. Yoon hailed the move as a symbolic move for better ties between Seoul and Pyongyang. The creation of Pyongyang time drew criticism from Mr. Moon's conservative predecessor, Park Yun-hae, for further deepening the disparity between the two Koreas whose division was sealed by the 1950-53 Korean War. The war on the Korean Peninsula has technically, has technically not ended. Mr. Moon and Mr. Kim last Friday vowed to seek the formal end of the war. Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte Today said the temporary ban on Filipinos going to work in Kuwait is now permanent, intensifying a diplomatic standoff over the treatment of migrant workers in the Gulf nation. Mr Duterte in February imposed a prohibition on workers heading to Kuwait following the murder of a Filipina maid whose body was found stuffed in a freezer in the Gulf state. The crisis deepened after Kuwaiti authorities last week ordered Manila's envoy to leave the country over videos of Philippine embassy staff helping workers in Kuwait flee allegedly abusive employer employers. The two nations had been negotiating a labor deal that Philippine officials said could result in the lifting of the ban, but the recent escalation in tensions has put an agreement in doubt. Mr Duterte told reporters in his hometown in the southern city of Davao, the ban stays permanently. There will be no more recruitment for especially domestic helpers. No more. Around 262,000 Filipinos work in Kuwait, nearly 60% of them domestic workers, according to the Philippines Foreign Department. Last week, the Philippines apologized over the rescue videos, but Kuwaiti officials announced they were expelling Manila's ambassador and recalling their own envoy from the Southeast Asian nation. Mr. Duterte on Sunday described the situation in Kuwait as a calamity. He said he would bring home Filipina maids who suffered abuse as he appealed to workers who wanted to stay in the oil-rich state. He said, I would like to address to their patriotism, come home. No matter how poor we are, we will survive. The economy is doing good and we are short of our, of our workers. 
About 10 million Filipinos work abroad to seek high-paying jobs. They were unable to find at home, and their remittances are a major pillar of the Philippine economy. Mr. Duterte said workers returning from Kuwait could find employment as English teachers in China, citing improved ties with Beijing. Describing China as a true friend, he said he would use Chinese aid to fund the workers' repatriation. Mr. Duterte added that he was not after vengeance against Kuwait and did not nurture hate. He said, But if my people are considered a burden to some of them, to some government mandated to protect them and uphold their rights, then we will do our part. A United Nations Security Council, or UNSC team, visited Rohingya refugees trapped in the no-man's land along the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar today as it weighs its response to one of the world's worst refugees, refugee crises. Myanmar has faced intense international pressure since the start of a military campaign in August that has driven some 700,000 Rohingya Muslims over the border into Bangladesh, where refugees have provided harrowing testimony of murder and rape by security forces and local mobs. The UN delegates will interview refugees in the Bangladeshi camps before travelling to Myanmar and meeting civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi, who has been denounced in the West for her failure to speak up for the Rohingya. The council is urging Myanmar to allow the safe return of the Rohingya and take steps to end the decades of discrimination that the stateless Muslim minority has suffered in the Buddhist-majority country. Bangladesh Refugee Commissioner Muhammad Abu Kalam told AFP that the UN team, with 26 diplomats from 15 countries, first visited Kona Para camp, where some 6,000 Rohingya have been trapped on bleak scrubland since the bloodshed began last year. The camp's Rohingya leader, Dil Muhammad, said the UNSC delegation met and spoke with some women victims of the violence in Rakhine, as well as community lead elders. Muhammad told AFP, We've told them that we are staying here to save our lives. We are very much eager to go back to our land, provided our security is ensured by the UN. Later, the council will also head to the Kutu Palong camp, where hundreds of Rohingya staged a protest ahead of the visit, holding banners demanding the restoration of their rights in Myanmar. Police dispersed the protesters peacefully, and AFP correspondents at the scene said. Rohingya leader Mohibula said, We want restoration of our citizenship under Rohingya ethnicity. We want security and return of our confiscated land and properties. He added that they would present the delegation with 14 conditions for their repatriation to Rakhine. Myanmar has said the military operation in Rakhine is aimed at rooting out extremists and has rejected nearly all allegations that its security forces committed atrocities in the state. Led by Kuwait, Britain and Peru, the four-day Security Council visit is expected to include a meeting with Bangladesh's Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, as well as a helicopter flight over Rakhine, to allow delegates to see the remains of villages torched during the violence. Kuwait Ambassador Mansour al-Otaibi said the visit was not about naming and shaming Myanmar, but that the message will be very clear for them. The international community is following the situation and has great interest in resolving it. On Friday, Human Rights Watch called for Myanmar's Rohingya crisis to be referred to the International Criminal Court. HRW Executive Director Kenneth Roth told reporters in Yangon. The lack of a UN Security Council resolution has left the Myanmar government convinced that it has literally gotten away with mass murder. 
Australia pledged half a billion dollars to restore and protect the Great Barrier Reef today in what it said would be a game-changer for the embattled natural wonder. The World, Heritage, the World Heritage listed site, which attracts millions of tourists, is reading from significant bouts of coral bleaching due to warming sea temperatures linked to climate change. The reef is also under threat from the coral-eating crown of thorn starfish, which has proliferated due to pollution and agricultural runoff. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said more than 500 million Australian dollars will go towards improving water quality, tackling predators, and expanding restoration efforts. Mr Turnbull said it was the largest ever single investment to protect the reef, secure its viability, and the 64,000 jobs that rely on the reef. He added, We want to ensure the reef's future for the benefits of all Australians, particularly those whose livelihood depends on the reef. The reef is a critical national asset, contributing 6.4 billion Australia dollars a year to the Australian economy. Canberra has previously committed more than 2 billion Australia dollars to protect the sites over the next decade, but has been criticised for backing a huge coal project by Indian mining giant Adani nearby. With its heavy use of coal-fired power and relatively small population, Australia is considered one of the world's worst per capita greenhouse gas polluters. Canberra insists it is taking strong action to address the global threat of climate, climate change, having set an ambitious target to reduce emissions by 26 to 28 percent from 2005 levels by 2030. Mr Turnbull said part of the money will be used to mitigate the impacts of climate change, but gave no details. Conservationists said, while the funding was an important step, the biggest threat to the reef was global warming, and not enough was being done to combat it by embracing clean energy. Science is well aware of what's killing the coral. It's the excess heat from burning fossil fuels, said Mr Bill McKibben, founder of the global grassroots climate movement 350.org. He added, to simultaneously promote the world's biggest coal mine, while pretending to care about the world's largest reef, is an acrobatic feat only a cynical politician would attempt. Australian Conservation Foundation Chief Kelly O'Shanassi agreed. She said, Our elected representatives can't have, it can't have it both ways. Climate change is the number one threat to the Great Barrier Reef, and only concerted action to cut the pollution will fully protect it. The bulk of the new funding, just over 200 million Australian dollars, was earmarked to improve water quality by changing farming practices and adopting new technologies and land management. Envir Environment Minister Josh Frydenberg said, The money will go towards improving water quality, working with farmers to prevent sediment, nitrogen and pesticide runoff into the reef. It will ensure that we tackle the crown of thorns and use the best available science to ensure our coral is resilient to heat and light stress. He said the government would work with traditional Aboriginal owners, the tourist industry, farmers and scientists to save the reef, calling the commitment a game-changer. Earlier this month, scientists said the site suffered a catastrophic die-off of coral during an extended heat wave in 2016, threatening a broader range of reef life than previously feared. A study in the journal Nature said some 30% of the reef's coral died, the first of an unprecedented two successive years of coral bleaching along the 2,300 kilometers reef.
staying in Australia. Voting in Lebanon's first parliamentary post in almost a decade kicked off in Australia today, with thousands of people casting their ballots in the historic election. Some 12,000 members of Australia's Lebanese community are registered to vote, Lebanon's embassy in Canberra said, a week before the May 6 election that will carve out the country's political and economic trajectory. Mr Nazi here, a 44-year-old member of the Lebanese Muslim community in Sydney, told AFP at a polling station next to the, next to the huge Lakemba Mosque. It's a special day today. It's, the, it's, democ it's Democracy Day. As you can see, everyone is happy here. We've been now from 2009 with no election, nine years and a bit more, and it is the first time in Australia. That is why we are so happy to get involved in the election in Lebanon, and we hope that everyone gets what he wants. The Middle Eastern country has not held a parliamentary vote since 2009, and a new law now allows Lebanese living abroad to vote for the first time since independence in 1943. With an estimated community of 230,000, which includes Lebanon-born migrants and their families, Australia is among the largest diaspora groups outside of the Americas. It's a good feeling for us to feel like we are involved in making a decision in Lebanon, and we feel that we can make changes, said Mr. Danny Gia Gia, 48, a Christian member of the Lebanese community. But he also complained about the voting process. Lots of people come coming here, they can't find their name on the register, and they are upset and angry, he said. People were casting their votes for one list of candidates running in the Lebanese district of origin, under a proportionate, proportional list-based system. They were also choosing one candidate on the list of parliamentary hopefuls, representing each relig religious community in that district under a strict quota system. Half the seats in Lebanon's parliament are reserved for Christians, and the other half for Muslims. After a successive waves of immigration from the 19th century to the 1975-90 to 90 civil war, some estimates say Lebanon's extended diaspora has bloated to a whopping 12 million, but most no longer have citizenship. Some 116 polling stations in Lebanese embassies and consulates in 39 countries are set up to vote, but only an estimated 82,900 people have registered to take part. Moving to your world news, Amsterdam's Skypole Airport was temporarily closed early today as a large blackout hit all operations at one of Europe's busiest airports. Authorities closed off roads to Skyfall and stopped train traffic to the airport around 3 a.m. G. Greenwich Mean Time. To ensure the safety of travellers, the airport said, as check-in procedures had become impossible and the airport's main halls overflowed with waiting passengers. Roads to the airport were reopened around 4.30 a.m. GMT as power was restored, but the disruption of services would have severe consequences for air traffic during the day, airport spokesman Jaco Bartels said. This would also affect flights to Amsterdam at other airports, as Skypole would only be able to handle 10 arriving planes per hour this morning, as priority was given to the large number of flights waiting to leave the airport. Skyport is the third busiest airport in Europe in numbers of travellers after London Heathrow and Paris Charles de Gaulle. As Saudi Arabia considers digging a moat along its border with Qatar and dumping nuclear waste nearby, United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo 
arrived in Riyadh on his first overseas trip as the nation's top diplomat with a simple message, Enough is enough. Patients with what is viewed in Washington as a petulant spat within the Gulf Cooperation Council has worn thin, and Pompeo told the Saudi Foreign Minister, Adel al-Jubeir, that the disputes needs to end, according to a senior State Department official, who briefed reporters on the meetings but who was not authorised to be named. In June, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates led an embargo by four Arab nations of Qatar, accusing the tiny, gas-rich nation of funding terrorism, cozying up to Iran and welcoming dissidents. Years of perceived slights on both sides of the conflict added to the bitterness. Pompeo's predecessor, Rex Tillerson, spent much of his tenure trying to mediate the dispute, which also involved Egypt and Bahrain, but without success. The Saudis, keen observers of Washington's power dynamics, knew that Tillerson had a strange relationship with President Donald Trump, and so ignored him, particularly because Trump sided with the Saudis in the early days of the dispute. But Pompeo is closer to Trump and thus a more formidable figure. And in the nearly 11 months since the embargo began, Quanta has spent millions of dollars on the Washington Charm Offensive that paid off this month when its leader, Emir Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, had an Oval Office meeting with Trump during which the president expressed strong support for the tiny country. So Pompeo came here to deliver the same message to Al Jubeir at an airport meeting yesterday afternoon to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman later that night and to King Salman in a meeting planned for today. Stop. Confronting Iran, stabilizing Iraq and Syria, defeating the last of the Islamic states in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, and winding up the catastrophic civil war in Yemen are seen in Washington as increasingly urgent priorities that cannot be fully addressed without a united and more robust Arab response. Pompeo arrived in Riyadh on the same day that Houthi forces in Yemen shot eight missiles at targets in the southeast southern Saudi province of Jizan, killing a man. The fusillade was the latest sign that Yemen's bloodbath is a growing threat to the region. The vast humanitarian crisis in Yemen has become such a keen concern on Capitol Hill that influential senators have begun discussing restrictions on arms sales to Saudi Arabia. That would undercut other administration priorities, including an effort to increase such sales as well as attempts to get the Saudis to play a more active role in stabilizing Syria and opposing Iran. Poor targeting by the Saudis in airstrikes, as well as the kingdom's blockade of Yemeni ports, have done much to worsen the humanitarian situation in Yemen, and Pompeo told Al Jubeir on yesterday that Yemen must have easy access to humanitarian and commercial goods, along with fuel, the State Department's official said. Pompeo also came to the Middle East to discuss the Iran nuclear accord, which most observers believe Trump will rip up on May 12, his self-declared deadline for deciding on a deal he has described as the worst ever. Today, Pompeo is scheduled to arrive in Jerusalem for talks with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel. Then, he will head to Amman, Jordan, for discussions with King Abdullah. President Emmanuel Macron of France and Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany both came to Washington this past week to urge Trump to preserve the Iran Accord. Trump has vowed that, regardless of what happens to the nuclear accord, Iran will not restart its nuclear program, something Iranian officials have said they may do if the United States abandons the deal. Trump has also vowed 
to pull U.S. forces out of the Middle East's grinding conflict, conflict in Syria, asking other countries to bear more of the burden. Whether the U.S. succeeds in persuading allies to do more there while telling the Saudis to back down over Yemen and Qatar is far from certain. And how the Iranians view Trump's threats while he pulls troops from Syria is also unclear. Tomorrow, Pompeo will return to Washington to help Trump prepare for a risky summit with the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, whom Pompeo met on a secret trip to Pyongyang over the Easter weekend. U.S. President Donald yesterday threatened to shut down the federal government in September if Congress did not provide more funding to build a wall on the border with Mexico. Mr. Trump said at a campaign rally in Washington, Michigan. That wall has started. We have 1.6 billion. We come up again on September 28th, and if we don't get border security, we will have no choice. We will close down the country because we need border security. Mr. Trump made a similar threat in March to push for changes in immigration law that he says would prevent criminals from entering the country. The government briefly shut down in January over immigration. A 1.3 a $1.3 trillion U.S. dollar spending bill, which Mr. Trump signed last month, will keep the government funded through the end of September. A government shutdown ahead of the November mid-elections is unlikely to be supported by his fellow Republicans, who are keen to keep control of the U.S. Congress. Mr. Trump cited the hundreds of Central American migrants traveling in a caravan as one of the reasons for strong border security. He said, Watch the caravan, watch how sad and terrible it is, including for those people and the crime that they inflict on themselves and that others inflict on them. It's a horrible, dangerous journey for them, and they come up because they know once they can get here, they can walk right into our country. Migrants, who include women and children, have said they fled their homes in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras because of death threats from gangs, the murder of family members, or political persecution. British forestry officials are warning parts of London about an invasion of caterpillars whose long white hairs can trigger allergic reactions in humans that include skin and eye irritation, difficulty breathing, and even anaphylactic shock. Caterpillars of the old processionary moth were spotted emerging from eggs in mid-April, according to the Forestry Commission, which oversees forests in England and Scotland. The caterpillar's hairs, which can be released as a defense mechanism or carried by the wind, contain thaumatopoin, an irritating protein, the commission said. Those who are allergic can become sick. Mr. Jason Dombrowski, manager of the Cornell University Insect Collection and coordinator of the Insect Diagnostic Lab in Ithaca, New York, said, At best, you can get contact dermatitis. At worst, you can die. You can go into anaphylactic shock and have your airways close up. The airborne hairs set up a whole different ballgame. British officials have issued similar warnings in years past as they have battled to stop the spread of the insect. This year, the Forestry Commission began treating trees in a control zone around the infected area with biopesticides, biopesticides which use viruses or bacteria that mostly harm the target pest. The treatment is expected to continue through late May or early June, with trees at more than 600 sites expected to be targeted, the agency said. We advise people not to pick up the caterpillar or pick up the nest, a spokesman for Britain's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs said, 
adding that there have been no reports of serious illness because of contact with the caught caterpillar. Mr. Robert Glatter, an emergency doctor at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan, said the speed of the reaction after contact is typically slower than that of a bee sting. He said each caterpillar has more than 62,000 toxic hairs, which after release can stay active for up to five years. He's, this is where the true toxicity of the caterpillar arises, he said. Word to the wise, it's best to observe their beauty from a distance. The caterpillars build distinctive white silkening webbing nests on the trunks and branches of oak trees in the early summer and also leave white silken trails, according to forestry officials. Mr. Dombrowski said, mature caterpillars have bodies that are dark on top and paler on the sides, entirely covered in dense hairs and with scattered pale orangish orangish spots. In addition to being hazardous to some humans and animals, the caterpillars also feed on oak tree leaves and can strip the trees bare, leaving them vulnerable to pests, floods and droughts. The oak processionary moth originates from southern Europe, but is kept in check there by natural predators such as beetles, parasitic wasps, flies and pathogens such as fungi, Mr. Dombrowski said. Its name comes from its feeding almost exclusively on oak trees and its movement in what forestry officials called nose-to-tail processions in late spring and early summer. Mr. Dombrowski said, When they travel from tree to tree, they go in a procession and they are head to butt in a straight line. None of our caterpillars in North America do that. They were accidentally introduced to Britain in 2005 when live oak plants imported from Europe contained their eggs. The moth is confined to southern England, mostly in London and a few neighbouring counties, but could thrive throughout the country were it to spread, British officials said. Mr. Dombrowski said the moth is not yet in the US, but is on a watch list of potentially invasive insects. He is on a task force with the New York State and federal agricultural officials, who monitor traps set at ports around the country. The caterpillar would most likely enter the United States through an invested nursery. It would thrive in the southern United States and could even be problematic for New York City, where Central Park has 2,800 oak trees. Speaking in general, he said, The loss of oak forests would be quite dramatic because it is a valuable, valuable timber tree and valuable, and valuable shade tree. Rather than worry, Mr. Dombrowski said the public should be on the lookout. To folks in the United States, it's not here. So don't worry, but we should continue to be vigilant. We have agriculture inspectors going around, but half of the new things in the US are found by the public who send it in. And your sports news from the English Premier League. Chelsea kept alive their hopes of qualifying for the Champions League as Blues boss Antonio Conte claimed his 50th Premier League win thanks to a Chesk Fabregas rocket in yesterday's 1-0 success at Swansea. Fabregas' fine strike came in the fourth minute, and the midfielder's 50th Premier League goal was enough to give Chelsea their fourth successive victory in all competitions. Chelsea in fifth are hard on Tottenham's heels in the battle for a top-four finish. They threw fourth-place Tottenham by two points ahead of their London rivals' clash with Watford on Monday. Swansea remain firmly in relegation danger, and Carlos Carvalho's side are now only a point above Southampton with a crunch battle looming against the Saints in the last week of the season. Swansea will feel they
they might have had the penalty in the second half when Gary Cahill trod on substitute Nathan Dyer's foot, but referee Jonathan Moss waved away their claims. There was also a late bust-up between the Chelsea skipper and Jordan Ayew after the Swansea striker shoved the defender in the back with a late challenge, although Cahill went down holding his head. Chelsea went for ahead with a goal of remarkable simplicity in the fourth minute, but which was all too easy for the liking of Carvalhal. Andy King lost possession in midfield, which allowed Eden Hazard to dance around Ki Song Yong Yuang and play in Fabregas, who caught the ball first time beyond keeper Lukas Fabianski. It was Fabregas's first goal since August, and both he and Hazard looked dangerous whenever they ran at a disorganized Swansea defense. Swansea's best opportunity came, best early opportunity came when Martin Olsen's swinging cross was met by Cornel Roberts, but the fullback was unable to direct his header. It was a red attack from Swansea, who looked vulnerable in defense without injured skipper Federico Fernandez. Victor Moses surged into the box, and his shot was deflected for a corner from which Olivier Giroud's glancing header flew just wide. Moss angered the home crowd with a series of decisions that went against them, mostly notably when a free kick was given against Jordan Ayew, even though it was the Swansea striker who was hacked down. Swansea found more attacking thrust at the start of the second half, and Andre Ayew came close to an equaliser when he got on the end of Olsen's whipped cross, but headed over. Suddenly, Chelsea looked more vulnerable, but Swansea had struggled to score goals all season. Without lone striker Tammy Abraham, Abraham, who wasn't eligible to face his parent club Chelsea, they lacked punch in the penalty area. Gerald sent a header on target that Fabian Ski saved, and Emerson who also tested the Swansea keeper before Swansea went next went near following a run to the byline by Dyer. Andre Ayew then had Swansea's best chance of an equaliser when he made room for himself on the edge of the box, rounded Cahill, but caught a shot wide of the far post. Chelsea looked shaky and survived a penalty appeal when Gary Cahill stepped on the foot of Dyer, but was considered to have played the ball first. Substitute Tom Carroll then drilled a low shot inches wide of the far post, and Wayne Routledge tested Debalt Courtois with another low drive. And other football scores? Championship League with Middlesbrough beating Millwall 2-0. German Bundesliga with Stuttgart beating Leverkusen 1-0. Italy Serie A with AS Roma beating Chievo 4-1 with AS Roma getting a red card. And also Juventus beating Inter 3-2 with Inter getting a red card. And lastly, the Spanish La Liga with Real Madrid beating Leganes 2-1 with Leganes gaining a red card. Villarreal beating Chaltavigo 4-1. And Getafe and Girona with a tie at 1-1 with Getafe getting a red card. Football scores are provided by Flash Scores. And this is the end of your news, Flash. Thank you for listening. Sean Lowe reporting from Singapore.